You are listening to the Missions History Podcast, brought to you by the International Mission Board, where we remember the past to inspire the future. Don't forget to like, share, and subscribe to the podcast. Welcome to Missions History Podcast. I'm David Brady and my co-host, Scott Peterson. And today we're excited to be talking about 10 turning points in the history of the IMB. And what we're wanting to set out today, uh, we've talked about individual missionaries, individual countries, but we want to sort of give the panorama of 174 years of Southern Baptist missions history. That's right, David. And um, these 10 turning points, you've had some experience talking about these as you brief our new trustees each uh, year on these turning points to give them that kind of overview. Is that right? That's right. Um, a couple years ago, um, Edgar Aponte asked me to come and speak to new trustees uh, in Asheville. And um, I thought it was interesting. I thought, well, maybe I would talk about the presidents that we've had, the, the sort of the uh, chief executive of the, the board. But he said, no, what I want you to do in this short time is talk about turning points. And after he said it, I was like, what a great strategy. You know, whenever you're trying to give history, the hardest thing is figuring out how are you going to divide the material. Right. It's always the biggest challenge. And this is really a great idea. We mentioned the presidents in this material, but it's much more focused on mega shifts, mega movements within the board over 174 That's years. right. And this first one is... Not really a turning point of the IMB, but a turning point in Baptist missions, at least North American Baptist missions. And that's the founding of the Foreign Mission Board in 1845. Uh, that's right. And um, I think the thing, the point I wanted to make on this is that what happened in 1845 when Southern Baptist or Baptist in the South broke away from Baptist in the North um, was, th though this was... Um, really one of the core issues was slavery and the Southern defense of slavery. Southern Baptists or Baptists in the South did not see their missionary efforts as being a break with what had gone before. That's right. They were absolutely in line and in favor with everything. And many of them from 1814, when the Triennial Convention had been founded, uh, had been supporting um, Adoniram and Judson and then the various uh, Mrs. Judsons um, and other missionaries um, through that triennial board. And that's that's was seen later as well with the fact that we were a big part of that centennial celebration of the Judsons going out to the field in the celebration of that effort. That That's right. And so, you know, you think about this, even the language of sort of the uh, constitution of the Southern Baptist Convention is the exact language that was used for the formation of the Triennial Convention. They saw it as the continuation of uh, this term that we all know, the one sacred effort. That's right. And, and that was language that had been uh, in play for, for decades. I think one point to illustrate this um, that is interesting to me is the the Southern Baptist Convention formed in Augusta, Georgia in May of 1845. One of the, the first thing they did was form the Foreign Mission Board um, of the Southern Baptist Convention. And the following February, 
in Richmond, Virginia, they welcomed Adoniram Judson for a visit. And they saw their uh, being a direct descendant of Judson here with United States missions. And before that, they saw themselves as the heirs of William Carey and the Baptist missions in England. And, and of course, some of our first missionaries were missionaries that had been a part of the combined board or triennial convention who cast their lots with the new foreign mission board. That's that's exactly right. And um, the kind of the chief example of that is J.L. Shuck mm-hmm. um, and uh, his wife, Henrietta, um, Henrietta Hall Shuck. Uh, they were not only Virginians, but they were from Richmond. Um, and uh, this was something that uh, it was not a hard decision for them because they're uh, allegiance lay with uh, the church in Richmond in the South, and uh, they had already been. In fact, she was the first um, American um, uh, missionary, Baptist missionary in all of China. They actually began work in Hong Kong. They were in Macau, Hong Kong, and then they even went into Canton. And uh, she died. One of the pastors here who became the first, what was then known as president of the board of tra- of managers was named Jeremiah Jeter. That's right. And he had been her pastor. Yeah. And so well, speaking of the first president of the board or what we now see as the president was then called the executive secretary. Why don't you tell us something about that first executive secretary of the board? Yes. And, and um, that's right. It does become executive secretary. At that point, it's called corresponding. It sort of changes, but that's the same role. They had several people that they looked at, but um, so, you know, you go all the way from May and it takes till January of 1846 before they hire someone. They find ultimately a pastor here in Richmond who was pastor in Grace Baptist Church. Um, and he was actually someone they had wanted to have, but they had been reluctant to pick somebody from Richmond because they thought that would seem too Northern. <laughs> and um, <laughs> James Taylor had actually been uh, a, a, um, a recording secretary for the Triennial Convention. So he was active in missions. He knew that world. And they knew that they had to have somebody, not just who was a visionary, but could do every single aspect of the work in organizing it and getting people to the field. And there was really in God's providence, nobody better suited for that than James Barnett Taylor. Well, in addition to Taylor and Shook, uh, who are some other key people, some early missionaries that would have fit into this time frame, this turning point, if you will? Yeah, so um, really the first missionary, we have to mention them, uh, came on before even Taylor was elected to the job, and that was in September of 1845, and that was Samuel Clopton. A month later, um, his uh, college roommate, George Piercy, was elected, both of them to go to South China. Um, Shuck then in 1846 comes on board, but the surprise is that um, we had a heart to reach people in Africa, and we already had a missionary force awaiting us in uh, on the coast of West Africa, and that were many people, particularly uh, former slaves or of uh, um, sometimes freedmen, who had left Virginia 
and had gone as a part of the American Colonization Society um, to what was by this point the country of Liberia. And so we had a guy named John Day who was just incredible. Uh, he was sort of the supervisor, but we, I think this is the shock for us. You know, though we were formed over the issue of slavery, um, the reaching of black people, uh, not only in America, but in other places was from the beginning, very important. And within a couple of years, we probably had more missionaries in Liberia, black missionaries, than white missionaries uh, in total. total. Yeah, and I think, you know, John Day is a fascinating figure in and of itself as we look at his role even in the government of Liberia and the influence he had there. And I think maybe next season we'll have an episode on on him, and I look forward to that opportunity. And, of course, I'm uh, from North Carolina, and his brother was a famous furniture maker in That's the right. state of North Carolina. Yeah. So what um, the next turning point, though, we're founded in 1845, just less than 20 years later, brings us to an event that really is a turning point in our country, not just in Southern Baptist missions. And that's the the onset of the Civil War. That's right. So we have um, about 15 or 16 years to sort of get established in our work. Um, We're really primarily a China mission agency, along with um, uh, people in Liberia. We've done a little work at this point in um, Yoruba uh, land. We've tried an effort to Brazil, but that's really pretty much the extent of Southern Baptist foreign missions. Um, and so it was, it was hard getting it established, but this fledgling 16-year-old work almost died um, because of the conflagration known as the Civil War. And um, you think about this, um, not only were all of the effects seen felt in the homeland, but funds coming to the mission board, the ability to get those funds out, um, completely dried up for periods of time. Um, there were a couple of exceptions. You had some border states, Kentucky. Uh, you had Maryland with the port city of Baltimore that some funds were able to go out. And also the, um, the BMS, the Baptist Missionary Society in England, also uh, provided periodic support to help some of our missionaries who were left stranded. Right. And, but some missionaries, and we've talked about this in other episodes and at other times where we've had discussions, they were forced to take on uh, businesses and tasks and in essence become what we would now call a tent making missionary because they weren't getting support from the states. And I'm glad you mentioned Baltimore and Maryland because uh, I think a fascinating story is the work of Franklin Wilson and his efforts to not just channel funds, but also correspondence to and from our missionaries on the field and uh, the home office here in Richmond. Yes, absolutely. And, you know, we all do owe a great debt of gratitude to Baltimore and to uh, their sort of keeping open those channels. We, we had kind of two extremes. Some of our missionaries who were in Yoruba land, um, they were just absolutely destitute during this period. They didn't have a, a, a job that they could turn to. Some of our missionaries, like um, from our state, uh, North Carolina, Matthew Yates, first Southern Baptist missionary from there, he was living in the city of Shanghai, 
became an interpreter for the U.S. consul there, um, also put some of the money he made from that into real estate and became an incredibly wealthy man um, when he was had no funds coming from his missionary job. And um, so there were people that did that. But really, so so during this time, I mean, even James Taylor, he became a chaplain in the um, in the South. Um, so everybody kind of has to leave. The board is virtually uh, shut down during this time. Um, and when they come back, they have debt and they look in their bank accounts and they have a dollar and 78 cents. A dollar and 78 cents. A dollar and 78 cents and, um, and debt on top of that. And so uh, really the question was, can we even salvage this? But this same guy, James Taylor, who, by the way, uh, was born in England, our first corresponding secretary was actually born in England and and moved to New York as a child. Um, he was God's instrument. I mean, we have to all look back and say that the founding father, James Taylor, was God's man, not only to get us started, but to pull us up just by sheer faith in God and hard work. Um, after the Civil War, he reconstituted the Foreign Mission Board of the Southern Baptist. You know, and I think we also have to look at those uh, people who stayed on the field through this time, through the struggles, those that were destitute, those that had to turn to other means for just being able to survive and to live. I mean, they could have very easily have decided, we're coming home. You know, this is it. But they didn't. They stayed committed to the call that God had given them and continued to work with those people and to carry the gospel to them. And I think that's just uh, just an amazing and fascinating uh, story in and of itself. But of course, that's not really as much of the point of this turning point that we're talking about as just the, the fact of the interruption of our ongoing operations and no expansion, no new missionaries going out, no funds. And, um, but we did continue. We answered the question. Yes, we do continue. That's right. We they did answer that question. Um, as I said, a lot of this was really the personal commitment of James Taylor. After the Civil War, he's already um, an older man. His health is beginning to fail, but he single-handed. I love stories. Reading. There's a great um, biography of him written by his son, who was our first missionary to um, Italy. That's right. Uh, and, but in that, one of the things that's interesting, he describes his father as going with the missionaries and when they, at whatever port city they were and spending days with them shopping for all of the items. I think about it now, you know, just imagining <laughs> seeing the president of the IMB going out with a new missionary couple, let's go shopping together. Maybe we should talk to Paul Chitwood yeah, maybe about that. Like, Paul, Hey, this is one of your new jobs. You're going to go shopping. But I mean, you know, in those days, shopping was they would buy stoves and I mean, all kinds of things that would be on shipboard. Um, it was really a complete outfit for them. Uh, but he was he was instrumental in that. I'll tell you one other uh, related thing. Um, so Civil War is over 1865. In 1879, the Southern Baptist Convention met in Atlanta and the discussion on the docket for the convention that year was, should we reunite with Baptist in the North? That was the discussion. And the overwhelming reason that reunification did not happen 
was because people, delegates to that, messengers to that convention were so um, happy about the work that the Foreign Mission Board was doing that they said, we can't give that up. This is this is um, the greatest thing that, and we're way more involved than when this convention was sort of uh, uh, really centered in the north. Right. We've got greater involvement. We've got we've got missionaries. We can't dissolve as a convention of Southern churches because of the great work of the Foreign Mission Board. So missions began became the reason of being for. The convention. Absolutely. It was essential at the beginning. And in that question of do we reunite or do we continue on our separate path, it was really the defining issue. Well, as an aside, since you mentioned James Taylor and his son and serving in Italy, he that son has written a fantastic book on the work of missions in Italy. And it's uh, quite easy to find. So we'll throw that out. Maybe that'll be a topic for a future podcast as well. Right. Absolutely. And um, George Boardman Taylor, which if you know that the Boardmans partnered with Adoniram Judson. Right. And so you see, I mean, these people, when you name your child for a missionary, um, then you know we really were a continuation of that Baptist. That's work. right. So I'll I'll throw the name of the book out there too. It's Southern Baptist in Sunny Italy. So the next turning point that happened up until this time, the board was leery of appointing single individuals, but they would appoint single men. But they really wanted them to go out uh, with with wives. But they hadn't been involved in appointing single women with one exception. But that does that we see after this an explosion of the women's missionary movement. Talk to us a little bit about that. Right. Um, You mentioned that. So in, I think, like 1849, we had appointed our first um, single female missionary. Harriet Baker. Harriet Baker. And she went to serve in China. Uh, Things didn't go well. Really complicated story. But, you know, as you see in almost any church or organization, you know, I love you go in the the church van and it says no drinks or or food allowed. And then you say, well, how did that policy come to pass? And, oh, the kids were going to Carowinds and they spilt the drink, you know, and that's when the policy happened. Oh, that's a blast from my past. Carowinds. <laughs> Carowinds. That's right. <laughs> so, uh you what you what you notice is is that policies tend to be because something didn't work well, you know? Right. And so I don't think that, I think Harriet Baker really was a good missionary. I think she got embroiled in a really bad situation. Um, And I think we made a wrong turn at that point to say, no, we're not going to have single missionaries. But something was changing. Um, There there were a lot of um, movements from, you know, with the Seneca Falls movement and other things that women's rights were being elevated. Right. But, um, you know, everybody says that, that this really happened with the second corresponding secretary. But actually, right before his death, James Taylor appointed the second single woman missionary, and she became uh, the first one to serve a full career, and that was Lula Wilden. Mm. And that was James Taylor's sort of his final uh, uh, act. But we don't really know, was this going to be a complete shift in policy for him? But what we do know is that his successor, H.A. Tupper, 
was was probably the greatest proponent of uh, women uh, as full active missionaries. If they were married, they were they were had uh, a missionary ministry also. If they were single, they had a missionary ministry also. So under Tupper, you have um, Edmonia Green. I mean Edmonia Moon. Moon. You have Lottie Moon. And then with Lottie, of course, the the floodgates opened. That's right. And, and Tupper a- developed a very close friendship with Lottie as well. The correspondence between them just uh, reveals that uh, friendship. Absolutely. And so, you know, I really think that this explosion of um, women involved in missions was important. And it was really three uh, three facets. First was you had wives and there were some wives who'd go and say, look, my job really is just, I'm here to support my husband, which is not just, but that's, that's what they saw their job, support my husband, raise my kids. But there were others who really had their own sense of call. And as we've talked about in other episodes, this was not, uh, like, an unneeded thing because the men in many of these more traditional societies could not reach women at all, right? particularly in China. We see that with Martha Crawford. We see that with Martha Crawford. So Martha Crawford becomes a fabulous example of a married woman who has a missionary career of her own in ministry. Um, but then you have single women um, sort of like a widow, like Sally Holmes or um, Lula Wilden or Lottie Moon. Uh, these are women who go, they have a sense of call. And, you know, in um, our denomination, this was probably one of the greatest ways that a woman could serve denominationally. And it was an open door. And if you look at it today, this is why I say this was not just a small thing. If you took away, this is my opinion, okay? If you took away the women from our missionary force, the married women, the 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 single women, you would have 60% of all that we've done would be gone, in my opinion. The role of women uh, has been that significant from this turning point. There are a lot of women who have made a huge impact in missions, and that's evidence just in looking at missionary biographies and how many of them are about women who made a difference. And, you know, we could go on and on with Kathleen Manley and Grace McBride and and many, many others. But the this turning point, this explosion of women and missions and women's involvement in missions was not just a field-oriented explosion, but it was also something and a key turning point here in the States as well. That's 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 exactly right, Scott. And that's that's the third um, aspect of this is that it would have been one thing if it's just women going and women serving, but women at home became active supporters. They, um, you know, this is the era of the beginning of the uh, Women's Missionary Union. And um, so you have women gathering in small groups, uh, circles, uh, learning about missions, praying about missions, having their mite boxes where they're they're putting money and, and they're raising funds. And, and so this movement, I think the real um, defining moment is not just women going, but now the real driver of support becomes women at home. And this is 
has been true really for probably a century after that. Sure. I mean, the whole organization of women's missionary societies, which, you know, local societies and state level societies, and then finally the coming together of the Women's Missionary Union and the driving force of supporting financially out of those societies, but also spiritually and the prayer support that took place in those meetings. And of course, we we all know the story of the Lottie Man Christmas offering coming out of this movement. Exactly. And, you know, Lottie, she writes back. Uh, she actually had been reading about Methodist women right. and how they had been uh, setting aside a time. You know, I think it's interesting about that. It was not ever meant to be just money given. It was always a week of prayer and fasting, not just prayer, but fasting, because she really she really saw that that in that act of sort of renouncing of self, that then you would really recognize, okay, my gift needs to reflect that. It's not just I give out of excess, I give out of sacrifice. And um, Lottie wrote this letter back. It it strikes a chord with Annie Armstrong, uh, and we're off to the races. Now, interesting, it was not the Lottie Moon Christmas offering at that point. It was, right. it was the China mission offering. And at at really, it was specifically to find women to come alongside Lottie for a few years. Then it more broadly becomes the China mission, not just support for uh, other women to b- beside Lottie. And then after Lottie's death, uh, it actually is named a few years uh, after her death in 1912. It's named for her, and it becomes a general offering that what, I mean, today, would you say like half the support comes? I, I think that's about right. Uh, I would ha- I hope no one here is holding me to that figure, but more or yeah, less. it's not We're just my, talking but the, roughly. Yeah, yeah. yeah roughly. Um, but but you're right. As far as the initial purpose was to be able to support additional missionaries on the field, and today the Lottie Moon Christmas offering 100% supports our missionaries and their work on the field. Yeah, and and that is um, so. That's that's all tied up in the. 1870s, 1880s is sort of the beginning of this. And that three prong, uh, the married women taking their role as missionaries, single women, and then, like you said, the support at home. And that that brings us up to what has quickly become one of my uh, areas of interest in looking at our history. And that's the explosion and diversification at the start of the 20th century. Mm-hmm. And uh, one of our, our at that time, corresponding, but then executive secretaries, Robert J. Willingham was the president, what we can now call the president at that time, yes. and the expansion of the work. Tell us a little bit about yeah, that. Yeah, so, you know, just to think about it, you you come to the 20th century, we're, we have, as far as countries, we're working in China, uh, we are working in Nigeria, um, we're not working anymore in Liberia at that point, uh, we're working in Italy. We are working in Mexico. We're working in Japan. And where else are we working? There's one other place, uh, Brazil. Brazil. So those are the big six. And um, those, a lot of those works had several decades. In China's case, there was, by the turn of the century, there was 50 years um, that they, we had been working there. Uh, So the work is developing. So you recognize, okay, we've been here, we've planted churches. Now 
people need printed materials in Portuguese. They need printed materials in Chinese. So printing houses and printing ministries begin to proliferate. And we have multiple printing houses um, around the world. That's just one example right. of that type of thing. Schools, uh, we, we've been in about schools from the very beginning. In fact, that was one of the ways women were very active in all level of schools. But, but, uh, sort of theological education, higher education starts to come during this point. Um, we see medical missions. Medical missions, right. We, we had done that, and it has sort of been a sideline for a lot of people. But around the turn of the 20th century, we start to see people who they were, they were not pastors who had a little medical training. They were medical doctors going out, uh, that being their primary focus and evangelism sort of being um, uh, uh, that would be the, the road into evangelism. That's right. But when you read their correspondence, their heart is all about that, uh, that getting the gospel out. And the medical missions was a tool for proclaiming the gospel. They saw the need to take care of the physical needs of people there, but they never lost sight of the primary task of sharing the gospel with people. And, and you know, and every one of them, and, and I just, I always just have to say amen every, every time I read one of them talk about this, they go, wasn't this how Jesus did it? Right. You know, and they always go, you know, Jesus was the first medical missionary. That's how they they put it. He was the first medical missionary and his his disciples, his apostles were medical missionaries. I mean, they're, they're, they're making their point um, that Jesus cared about had compassion on broken bodies. And it really is a powerful, powerful door, has been, um, and continues to be a powerful opening door uh, for the gospel. I think of a couple of people. T.W. Ayers was in his 40s. He was a medical doctor in Anniston, Alabama. He goes out to North China, uh, the the land of Lottie, uh, and he actually founds the first Southern Baptist Mission Hospital uh, in the town of Wangsheng, um, and it's known as Warren Memorial, funded by um, First Baptist Macon. And then side by side with that, you get a new, um, a new group of Southern Baptist missionaries. There's a woman named uh, Jessie Pettigrew, mm -hmm. and she's the, she's the first registered nurse. She comes to work with T.W. Ayers and so we've not only had uh, medical doctors, we have had a wonderful core of missionary nurses. And, and over in Nigeria, we see George Green, right. who comes in, and he's a real innovator in missions and methodology there. And that's what I find fascinating about the early 20th century is all of the innovations that began to be used. And Green brings in the first car to the Nigeria Baptist Mission. It's a 1910 Model T. Have you seen a picture? Of I have seen oh, several oh, wow. pictures you of that. Show it to me. And, and they, he goes down and he gets this car and he has to buy all of the petrol, all the gas for it to last because they can't access that in Albomashaw where he is working. Uh, he he's an innovator in photography and mission photography, so just a fascinating guy there. But you know, when Willingham became president at that time, he was the youngest uh, leader of the foreign mission board to be elected, and the board was in debt, and he spent so much of his time trying to 
drag the foreign mission board out of debt. And uh, there was a convention, a Southern Baptist convention in my hometown of Wilmington, North Carolina, where they had finally announced the foreign mission board is no longer in debt. And he began leading in expansion of the work. We see us moving into uh, inner China at that time, adding stations in China, adding countries. Um, Unfortunately, the board gets back into debt. And I know that's going to be a theme later that we'll talk about in another episode Mm -hmm. and one of these turning points. But, uh, But he also takes the first worldwide tour to visit missionaries on the field to mm-hmm. see the work. He does. And a fascinating story. And, and you've got a great on the website, uh, the archives. I, yeah. At imb.org, you can, uh, through a few clicks in our archive site, you can follow along with the Willinghams on that journey. It, it, they left the States in 1907 and they didn't return again after a, a round the world trip in 1908. And by the way, I just want to say that is an excellent thing. I hope people go out. It is it is just really well done. That's one of the um, sort of gifts that Archives uh, has given. I, I just hope y'all will keep doing stuff like that. I've well, enjoyed it. It's been a blessing Well, thank you. And we're, and we're hoping to do more of those. Uh, let me do, can I say one more thing about yeah. that, Scott? You know, this expansion and diversification, I, I try to think about it, uh, you know, and just try to understand, like you said, you know, going into printing, schools, mercy ministries. We even have an agricultural missionary working uh, in interior China, um, introduces the first cows for milking in that part of China. Um, and so there, there, and who was that? Um, it was, uh, Lawton, I think was the last okay. name Lawton's. And, um, it, it, you've, you've really kind of a lot of fascinating things that are happening in that period. But this is what I, I, I tried to ponder on. This is really the beginning of the idea of a platform. These were other reasons that people could be there who had a heart to share the gospel and to plant churches. But I'm a doctor, I'm an agricultural worker, I'm a teacher, uh, you know, uh, I'm a nurse, whatever. Those, uh, I'm, I'm a printer. Um, that all the way back to William Ward and the Sarampore Trio, that was, we've known that, but in Baptist life, it really begins to take root during the beginning of the 20th century. There's something else that's evident here, uh, and that is when you talk about diverse, diversification, I think of the diversity of our, our force, our missionaries. Solomon Ginsburg, a converted Jew who was born in what is now Poland, goes to work in Brazil. And if you look at, say, our first missionary album that was published in 1913, and you look at the locations from which those missionaries are coming uh, all over the place. I mean, even our first, talked about our first corresponding secretary was born in in England, and we see other missionaries from Canada, from the UK, and elsewhere around the world. Yeah, that, that's a great point. You mentioned George Green. He was from England. That's right. Um, went to Canada and then then through the to the US um Solomon Ginsburg Poland Jewish converted in um London serves in Brazil Eric Alfred Nelson Swedish um who serves in Brazil and becomes a Southern Baptist um uh, so many examples of uh, people from other nationalities that kind of get adopted into the, the board. Duvals from New Brunswick, the Duvals, Canada, as New well. Brunswick. Yeah, so lots of examples. You know, mentioning one thing about Mercy Ministry in this, also leper colonies. Um, at, That's right. At, we, we had one in Obamashaw. We've talked about that uh, work in in Nigeria, uh, but there was also one in South China. 
um, with John Lake. And so there's just a lot of ways that Southern Baptists start to minister. Um, this is going to be a blessing and it is going to deepen a lot of work, but a lot of these institutions, schools, hospitals, they're very expensive to maintain. That's right. And at a later point in the 20th century, uh, in a subsequent episode, in a subsequent episode of of uh, Missions History podcast, we'll look at how that actually sort of becomes an albatross for certain right. Well, at this time too, there is a movement that is is being talked about among Protestant denominations and what we would consider even evangelical denominations. Uh, and that is a, a, an effort, a push to combine, to join forces. Talk to us a little bit about that and how that becomes a turning point in our history. From the beginning, um, you go back to uh, 1877 in Shanghai. Um, they had the first general Protestant missionary conference. Our missionary, Matthew Yates, um, T.P. Crawford, his wife, Martha Crawford, they were big players in that. Um, uh, Lottie Moon was actually out of country at that point. Um, but there was always this idea, we need we need great commission partners. We right. need other people, and we can learn from each other. We can support each other in ways. But what started there in Shanghai in 1877, by the time you get to 1910, in Edinburgh, you have this, uh, the Edinburgh Missionary Conference. Right. And this conference is pulling all kinds of denominations together. And it, um, it, first you think, well, it's just sort of encouragement, but there is really this sort of underlying idea that denominations need to sort of cease. And instead, we just need to all be Christians together and and kind of put aside all of those uh, denominational distinctives and let's just uh, unite to reach the world for Christ. That was the kind of the message and kind of at first glance, you go, yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense. The difference, what happened after Edinburgh, they formed what were known as continuation committees. And this was probably the most unique feature of the Edinburgh Conference is these continuation committees continued to press and develop the agenda of all missionary uh, forces uniting and creating sort of um, generic Christian churches, Christian ministries in various mission fields around and, the world. And that became known as the Union Movement, That right? became known as the Union Movement. So after the third corresponding secretary, we have a guy from North Carolina, Eastern North Carolina, like you, um, James Franklin Love. Uh, he had been a state exec in, in Arkansas. He'd worked for the Home Mission Board. He'd been a pastor. Uh, a very sharp thinker, different sort of personality, but you're coming after World War One. America is riding a tide of optimism. There's new funds. There's a new vision of the world. Um, and what happened at this point was the pressure on missionary organizations to unite was incredible. It was so intense. There were people like a guy named Arthur Brown that were writing uh, and saying, "We, you know, the the problem, the reason we're not reaching the world for Christ is because of these denominations. It is a scandal in these countries. We need to get rid of denominations, get rid of distinctives, 
form unions. So if we do a hospital, we do it uh, collectively. We have a seminary, we do it collectively. Well, God gave us a critical thinker at this critical time, Mm -hmm. and it was J. Franklin Love. He was able to recognize something that really, even some of our our missiologists in the seminaries, in Southern Baptist uh, Theological Seminary, didn't realize. And that is that if you compromise on distinctives that and and you say I can't actually hold to believers baptism. You know you 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 have a seminary and it's a union seminary. You're not all of a sudden you're not only not going to teach believers baptism. Baptism just sort of becomes uh who cares? You know, it's not a big deal. You do it this way, I say tomatoes, you say tomatoes. It doesn't matter. And what happens is is you kind of get down to this sort of mere Christianity idea and you you you're in trying to get rid of distinctives, you sort of make it a very fuzzy sort of thing. And what James Franklin realized, James Franklin Love realized, if we do this, not only is this sort of a betrayal of all the people who've given money and of our our hard-fought Baptist right. beliefs, what he recognized is if all of a sudden you can't press ecclesiology as a really an important issue, what's to say five years from now, 10 years from now, that you can press the exclusivity of Christ as a significant issue? Mm. And you know what? He was absolutely right. The denominations that joined the union movement, by and large, that union movement, you know, John R. Mott was sort of the, 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 the uh, driving force of this, but those denominations that joined this they not only sort of began to de-emphasize their denominational extinct, uh, um, distinctives, right. within a couple of uh, decades, they were actually, the the gospel began to lose its clarity. This is where you have the World Council of Churches, uh, all of those things that uh, in an effort for a John 17 unity, they sacrificed a John 17, sanctify them in the truth. Right. And, um, you know, unity without truth, without biblical truth, is not sustainable, and it's not Christ-like. And so this was important. He was not an uncharitable person. He wanted to partner and cooperate and pray with people, but he didn't want an organic union that all of a sudden there were uh, people of a different denomination who were saying, this is what you can teach, what you can't teach. This is how you can form a church. Um, and so right. this was critical juncture. We didn't do it. And I can honestly say, you look at other denominations, not to mention their names, but you look at mainline denominations and uh, their missionary forces are completely emaciated, just gone. That's right. And, you know, I think in fairness to some of those people who are advocating a union, uh, they were solidly uh, evangelical, biblical in their theology, but they weren't thinking through the implications for when the push within their own denomination lost sight of the authority of Scripture, and it d- went down from there. Well, David, this has been a fascinating conversation about five of the ten turning points, but our time for today is up. And so I think next time, our next episode, we're going to be discussing five more. Great. Scott, thank you so much. And um, I appreciate being able to dialogue with, with you about this. And so until next time for Missions History Podcast, I'm David Brady. And I'm Scott Peterson. Take care. Thank you for listening to the Missions History Podcast. 
Don't forget to like, share, and subscribe. And check out more great content like this at imb.org.